Amen. Sitting there thinking as we were singing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. What a great word. I don't think it can get any more powerful than that right now. And uh, I think what an appropriate song for us to sing this morning in the midst of coronavirus chaos, to remind ourselves that in the midst of all of the turmoil that's going on in our culture and all the things that are happening around us, that it can still be well with our soul this morning. That's what church is all about. It's about coming together and uh, with all of our brokenness and all of our troubles and all of our struggles and all of our turmoil and all of the baggage that goes on in our own personal lives to have a place we can come to as followers of Jesus Christ and worship together. So thank you for being a part of that this morning. I've been watching on YouTube a little bit while we were singing. Notice we had about 94 different, uh, different devices that were connected to us a few minutes ago. So thank you for joining us this morning. And many of you have been putting over there in the live chat, hello to church family. So thank you for doing that as well. Uh, before we look at God's Word this morning, I just want to update you on a couple of things. And one of those, I'm, I'm wearing a North American Mission Board sweater this morning as a reminder to me and as a reminder to us that we are still during a season of prayer for Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American Missions. And uh, we are privileged as a Southern Baptist church to be partnered with the North American Mission Board, which takes the gospel all throughout uh, our United States as well as Canada. Um, we have thousands of church planters and missionaries uh, who are serving through the North American Mission Board. Um, and uh, this is a season that we set aside as a church. Don't normally, just prior to my sermon, we'd be showing you a video of one of our, uh, one of our church planters and one of our North American Mission Board missionaries, which we're unable to do at this particular point in time. But let's continue to remember to pray for them. Um, we also give to the North American Mission Board Annie Armstrong Easter offering through our harvest offering. And so for those of you that continue to give your harvest offering gifts, 16% uh, of what you give through our harvest offering this year will go to support our North American missionaries. And right now they need support as much as anybody, right? Uh, I've known that several of them are planting churches in some of these huge metropolitan areas where they have had even more limitations because of the coronavirus and being able to connect with their people. And they're in an area where there's deep need for the gospel. Uh, and yet they're finding creative ways to be able to connect to people during this time. And so let's continue to pray and let's continue to give sacrificially to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. I also wanted to tell you that this week our church is going to be uh, honored to be able to partner with uh, one of our local schools, West Decatur School, uh, to help support them during this time of spring break. We were asked by the school board to assist in feeding and what they call a community trunk feed. And so we will be preparing about 150 to 160 meals for the children that are getting fed through the school system. And we'll be delivering those meals every single day, Monday through Friday. We have several volunteers on our mission team that are heading up a day each day, and they've recruited some volunteers to assist them with the handing out of the food. We were able to partner with some local businesses here like Sonic and, and, Big, Bo uh, and Big Bob Gibson's Barbecue and several others to be able to provide some of the food. And so be praying for us this week. We'll be assembling some of those uh, packages this afternoon. Uh, some of our hospitality team will be doing that. And then tomorrow morning we'll be handing those out at uh, West Decatur School. So be praying for us during that time. Also, um, you probably by now heard word from the governor uh, this last week that basically all gatherings of 10 or more are canceled 
until after April the 17th, which means that all gatherings for Easter Sunday morning are canceled. Uh, and we are still trying to figure out what that's going to look like for us as a church as we try to figure out what Easter will be like in a virtual online world and uh, some other opportunities that we may have to connect during that time. We're still considering having the church open on Good Friday for prayer uh, like we did last year. Um, as long as we're able to do that and keep those uh, restrictions, those, those 10 people restrictions uh, and things like that. So be praying for us. Um, we'll be giving you more information about what Easter looks like in the days and weeks ahead. And, and even maybe when we are able to gather together as a faith family to be able to celebrate a Resurrection Sunday, that first Sunday that we get back. But if you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses of 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning as we continue in a series called Kingdom Exiles Living Hope. We've been in this series since about January, so we're in sermon number 11 of this sermon series. And throughout this, we've been reminded that this was a letter that was written to first century Christians who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, who were finding themselves increasingly caught in a tension between the teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles and the pagan culture that surrounded them. They realized as followers of Jesus Christ that their newfound faith in Him as Savior meant that there was to be a distinctive change in their lives and a distinctive break with their former way of living. They realized that, but they also sought to live in such a way to please Christ and to honor Him, and as they did so, they found themselves being the constant target of ridicule, marginalization, and persecution from those around them that did not know Jesus Christ as Savior. It's that same tension that we feel as followers of Jesus Christ even today, that we understand that our faith in Jesus Christ and our trusting Him as Savior and our submission to Him as Lord means that there are to be some things that are distinctively different about the way that we live. There will be some things that are distinctively to honor Him. And because of that, there will be values and priorities and choices that we will make as followers of Jesus Christ that will look different than some of the people around us who don't know Christ. And as we choose to live that way, sometimes our choices make us the object of marginalization or persecution or ridicule. And so that's the reason why Peter continues to come back and remind us of some key biblical themes that we've looked at throughout this series. The first of those is that Christian believers in this world have had a change of citizenship and a change of allegiance. We are now citizens of an eternal heavenly kingdom where Jesus Christ is our King. Yet, even though that is true, we live present lives as earthly citizens, citizens within nations and cultures who do not know Christ. And for this reason, we feel constantly that this world that we live in is not really our home, and we know that it is not our final destination. We live under the sovereign rule of another king, and our true allegiance is to him and him alone. And this makes us kingdom exiles. And since we are kingdom exiles, our choices and our priorities and our allegiances must look differently than those who do not know Christ. But the second theme that Peter continues to return to is the theme of hope. That as kingdom citizens, we're not to live with a sense of despair. We're not to live with a sense of frustration. We're not to live with a sense of, of piousness or aloofness from the culture around us. Instead, we are called to live in this world as of, of lost people. We're called to live as kingdom citizens with living hope. 
So Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3-4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're called to live with hope. And we saw in 1 Peter 3.15 a couple of weeks ago that we are to set our Jesus Christ the Lord in our hearts as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet to do it with gentleness and respect. And so we are kingdom exiles with living hope. And today we're going to move into chapter 4, and we're going to see in chapter 4 that Peter's main idea of this chapter is that since we as Christians have been the objects of great grace through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered for us, we in turn are to be good stewards of that grace that He has given us. And so let's talk for a moment about grace. Before we look at our text, let's talk about the word grace. What do we mean in the church by the word grace? It's a word that we throw around a lot in Christian circles, but I don't know if most Christians really have a good handle on what it means and the power of grace in our daily lives. When I was a young Christian, I remember that somebody tried to explain to me the word grace by using an acronym, and they used the acronym that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Perhaps you've heard that before, and I think that's, that's one way to understand it, but I really think that's an oversimplification because I don't think that you can take something as, as beautiful, as dynamic as grace and boil it down into an acronym and do it justice. Um, some people think about grace, and when they think about grace, they think about a prayer that they say before they eat a meal. And it's much bigger and much broader than that. And its simplest form, grace means God's unmerited favor towards unrighteous sinners by imparting to them the undeserved righteousness of Christ and leading them into a restored relationship with Himself. So let me say that again, because that's, it's not on your screen. You may want to write that down. God's grace means His unmerited favor towards unrighteous sinners by imparting to them undeserved righteousness from Christ, which leads them into a restored relationship with Himself. I heard a pastor many years ago say that grace means that God treated Jesus as though He were me so that He could treat me as though I were Jesus. It's a great way to think about it. And the Bible tells us over and over and over again that grace is a gift. It's something that is given, not earned. And as such, it's something that is to be stewarded well. So I have a question for you to think about this morning. And that question is, what is something that you have received as a gift that is so precious to you that you take great care to protect and preserve it? What is something that you receive from someone as a gift that, that is so valuable to you that you, 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 you preserve it, you keep it in, in a safe place, and you make sure that it is not to be abused or to be lost? Maybe it is something that you received after a loved one passed along. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a wedding ring or, or, or something that uh, someone that your spouse gave you many years ago. For me, when I thought about this question, one of the first things that came to mind was some medals that I received that belonged to my grandfather when he was in World War II. And after my grandfather passed many years ago, as we were going through some of his things, uh, I asked if I could receive those medals, and I keep them in my drawer next to my bed. And every once in a while, I'll pull those out, and I'll look through those medals, and I'm reminded of the service and the sacrifice that my grandfather made for this country, but I'm also reminded about the profound influence that he had on me. You see... 
Gifts that are valuable are those that are to be stewarded well. And that's what grace is. Grace is a gift. Grace is unmerited favor. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are saved by grace through faith, that it is a gift of God. It is not something that we have done ourselves so that we have no grounds to boast. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn the favor of God. The Bible clearly tells us that our sinful hearts and the record of our sinful actions have turned God's favor away from us. They've separated us from Him, and they have made us targets of His righteous wrath. Yet, in His love, God imparts to unbelievers a gift of forgiveness and redemption to us by something that Jesus has done on our behalf, not by something that is good within us. The nature of grace is that of a gift. And as a gift, it is something that we must hold in careful trust and that requires careful stewardship on our part. And we remember that God's unmerited favor towards us was won by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is what Peter was saying in the verse we looked at last week in 1 Peter 3.18 when it says that Christ suffered once for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ has left us an example of righteous suffering in this world when he suffered unjust blasphemy and unjust torture in order to win our forgiveness by his sacrifice on the cross for us. And that gift of grace requires careful stewardship on our part. And that's Peter's whole point in chapter 4, which we're going to look at in two parts. Today we're going to look at part 1 and what it means to be careful stewards of God's grace. And next week we're going to look at part 2. And so with that in mind, I want us to read the first seven verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. A lot to unpack in this passage, but let me give you the big idea, the big thing that, that, that Peter is trying to tell us in these first seven verses. The big idea of this text is simply this. If Christians are to suffer well for righteousness' sake, which he tells us over and over and over again in this passage, that we are to suffer for righteousness' sake. If we are to suffer well for righteousness' sake, then it begins by equipping ourselves properly in the battle for our minds. If Christians are to suffer well for the sake of righteousness, as we are called to do, if we're to suffer like our Savior, who suffered persecution and marginalization for doing what was right, and He did that to leave us an example that we would follow, if we're going to do that well, it begins by equipping ourselves properly in the battle for our minds. What I mean by that? Well, very simply, what controls our mind eventually controls 
our actions. Whatever is the dominating operating system of the mind will eventually affect our decisions, our choices, and even our direction and destination. Whatever controls our mind, whatever controls our way of thinking, that's what's going to control our decisions, it's going to control our actions, it's going to control the way that we live in front of a lost, pagan, and dying world. And so Peter gives us three kingdom attitudes for kingdom exiles, three critical attitudes that you and I must embrace if we're going to win the battle for our minds and to suffer well for righteousness' sake. And the first of these attitudes shouldn't be surprising because it's a recurring theme that we've seen in this book. And that is that we need to embrace eventual suffering for the greater purposes of God. We need to embrace eventual suffering for the greater purposes of God. What do we mean by that? We've seen that the Bible tells us in 1 Peter over and over and over again that followers of Jesus Christ will eventually suffer some form of persecution, marginalization, or ridicule for our faith in Christ and consequently our choices to live for Him. And so we need to know that is a reality that's coming and we need to even embrace that reality and understand that as we suffer, we do so for the greater purposes of God. Because we are connected by faith to a Savior whose whole life was one of suffering and suffering for doing what was right. One whose whole mission was accomplished by suffering unjustly on the cross. You and I are called to share in His sufferings. This is what, Peter, it's what Paul meant when he wrote to the, to the Philippians and he said in Philippians chapter 3, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then he says, and I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Who doesn't want to know the power of a resurrection? But he also says, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul is telling us the very same thing that Peter is telling us in 1 Peter. That the pathway to becoming like Christ will take us through the crucible of suffering. The pathway of becoming like Jesus will take us through the crucible of suffering for his sake. We looked last week and we saw that when we are put on trial in the court of public opinion, we are to remember Jesus who is our example in suffering and the foundation of our hope. He is the Savior who suffered to redeem us, and He is the Lord who reigns over all. And we are to remember Him when we are being persecuted and marginalized. And so, Peter, barring on that theme of chapter 3, comes right into chapter 4 and says this in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Since we know that Jesus Christ suffered unjustly in the flesh, we need to mentally arm ourselves with that same way of thinking. What is he saying? He needs we need to embrace eventual suffering like Christ did for the greater purposes of God. The word arm yourselves is a military term. Peter is using battle imagery here. And he is reminding us that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are engaged in a daily warfare of philosophies, ideas, and worldviews. Every single day that we go out and engage this world, we are engaged in an invisible warfare of competing philosophies and worldviews about what's going to control our way of thinking and therefore what's going to control our actions. 
We battle, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, against cosmic powers of this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so each day as Christians, you and I are engaged in a battle for the mind. For what mindset will control our thoughts and therefore control our actions? And so if we're going to be engaged, it makes sense that we should arm ourselves properly. And the way that we do that is we arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ had, which was to be willing to suffer unjustly for doing what was right. Peter is saying, just as Jesus suffered, the righteous one for the unrighteous, you and I must suffer sometimes at the hands of unrighteous people in order to be faithful to God's greater purposes for our lives. It's a reminder to us, I I look back at chapter 3, verse 18 this week and was meditating on that when it said that, that Jesus, the righteous one, suffered for the unrighteous. It's a reminder to us that for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, at one time, you and I were the unrighteous before God. And yet Christ suffered for us so that, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are the righteous ones. Not because of an inherent goodness within us, not because we have suddenly become good people, but because the righteousness of Christ has been put into our account and we've been made righteous before Him because of what Christ has done. Now, we are righteous and we are called to suffer injustice and persecution just like our Savior so that God can demonstrate His righteousness through us to an unrighteous and lost world around us. And so for this reason, it is critically important that we understand as Christians the idea that self-preservation and self-fulfillment are no longer to be the highest goals for a follower of Jesus Christ. Self-preservation and self-fulfillment are not to be our highest goals to which we seek to attain. We must understand that it is the nature of kingdom exiles to live lives of self-denial and to be willing to embrace the eventual suffering that will come with identifying with Jesus Christ in order to embrace the greater purposes of God, which is to demonstrate the gospel to the lost world around us. Even now, we are living in a time of extreme difficulty and suffering because of this virus in our communities and in our country. Some of us in the next few weeks will suffer the loss of income. Some of us may eventually even suffer from this disease itself. Many of us are suffering isolation during this time. And yet we must understand and embrace that this crisis is a time for us as followers of Jesus Christ to shine and to serve the lost world around us in ways that we've never done before. This is a time that will create divine opportunities for gospel conversations. It may be difficult in a world of of distancing and social distancing where you can't have meetings with people being any closer than six feet apart, but you can have text conversations, you can have phone conversations, you you can look and pray strategically for people in your life during this time, friends, neighbors, and co-workers who, who don't know Christ, and you can begin to pray for God to use this crisis as a way to soften their heart and for you to plant seeds of the gospel in conversations with them. Let's steward this opportunity well, church. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to embrace eventual suffering for the greater purposes of God. 
But the second thing that you and I need to do as followers of Jesus Christ is that we need to resolve to make a definite break with the deliberate practice of sin in our lives. This is really the main theme of verses 1 through 7, that you and I need to resolve in our lives right now to make a definite break with the deliberate and ongoing practice of sin in our lives. Peter is telling us in verses 2 through 4 that one of the ways that we best steward the grace of God that was won for us by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is by breaking with habitual patterns of sins that wage daily war on us. Let's look at verses 2 through 4 again. He says we're to arm ourselves in verse 1, and they say, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they may malign you. In verse 2, Peter says that we are, as followers of Jesus Christ, no longer to live for our human passions. He's talking about making a definite break with the deliberate practice of sin in our lives. In other words, our unbridled human passions are not to be the dominating and controlling force of our lives any longer as followers of Jesus. Instead, we are to live lives in such a way that we point people to the life-transforming power of the gospel and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I love what he says in verse 3 when he says, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Did you catch that? The time that is past suffices. In other words, he's saying to you and me as followers of Jesus Christ that you and I have already sinned enough in the past before we became followers of Jesus to have a lifetime worth of sin. Peter is saying that you and I need to adopt the attitude as followers of Jesus Christ that enough is enough. How many of you ever had uh, a confrontation with your parents when you were growing up? Maybe when you were maybe in your late teen or early young adult years and you knew a lot more then than you know now? And maybe you were having a conversation with your, with your mom and dad and there was something that you wanted to engage in and they told you it wasn't something that you needed to and you chose to do it anyway and, and finally your mom and dad came to you and they said, you know what, enough is enough. We're not going to have this conversation any longer. You and I have already sinned enough in this lifetime to prove and demonstrate the worthlessness of sin and living for unbridled passion in our lives. We don't need to experience more sin in the Christian life to know the goodness of God and the majesty of grace. Enough is enough. The time that is past suffices for living for unbridled sinful passion. Do you remember the first time that you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ many years ago? I remember going to that movie the first night to preview it because I wanted to know whether or not I could recommend it to some of the students that were in my youth group. So me and one other person went to go watch that movie. It was just the two of us in the movie theater that night. We went to the late movie. It was on a Wednesday night. We went to the late show. And as we were walking out of the theater, if you were in the theater the first time that you watched it, you will remember that when that movie ended, there was an extreme amount of silence in the movie theaters. People were contemplating what they had just seen and what they had just experienced. And I remember as me and my friend walked out of the theater that day and walked to my truck in the parking lot, we didn't say a word to each other from the time we got up from our seats until the time that we sat down in our truck. 
And when we sat down in my truck, I looked over at the friend that was at the movie theater with me, and I said these words, If that's what it cost Jesus to forgive me of my sins, I never want to sin again the rest of my life. I was feeling the weight of my sinful choices and what it cost my Savior, and I had made the determination that enough is enough. Now, does that mean I've become uh, perfect and, and I've reached a state of sinless perfection in which I do not sin anymore? No, that would be a lie to say that, and that would be a sin. I have not reached that state, but I had reached the state where, at least in my mind, I had made a deliberate decision to break with the practice of deliberate and ongoing sin in my life. And Peter describes several types of sin which would have been common in the first century world, things such as sensuality, which means to just live for unbridled sexual pleasure, passions, which is unbridled living for your human urges, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. This word lawless idolatry means rebellion against both God's moral law as well as against the civil legislation that God has placed in our lives. And Paul, Peter's use of the word idolatry here reminds us that the heart of all sin is really idolatry and a rejection of God. Going back to the temptation in the garden where that snake Satan slyly hissed at Eve and said, you can become like God. Each and every sin is an attempt to reject God's authority over us and instead to become our own authority. Peter says, instead, you and I are to engage in a battle of the minds and therefore we must arm ourselves with a Christ-centered way of thinking. And one of the ways of doing this is manifested by saying any degree of sin in the past is enough. We've already sinned enough for one lifetime and we've been shown great grace from God to forgive us of our sin. Therefore, let us make a deliberate break with the practice of sin in our lives. Peter goes on to say that when we make a conscious break with sin, we should expect as a result of that ridicule and mockery from those who don't know Christ. Some of us experienced this when we first became Christians and we decided that we could no longer do some of the things that we did before. And as we began to say to some of our former friends that we couldn't do that, they, they may have made fun of us or belittled us or mischaracterized us for saying, I can't do that anymore now that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. We see this attitude from secular media whenever Christians refuse to participate or endorse sin in the culture. And instead of demonstrating respect for Christian beliefs, oftentimes Christians are maligned and ridiculed for the things that we believe. We're called prudish, self-righteous, and pharisaical. And Peter is telling us we shouldn't be surprised. Instead, we should willingly walk the road of suffering for righteousness' sake, which leads us to the final point, and that is this, that one of the attitudes that you and I need to have as followers of Jesus Christ is that we need to live each day as one who is ready to give an account before God. We need to live each day as one who is ready to give an account before God. In verse 5, Peter says that the lost world may malign us as Christians for our beliefs and for refusing to participate in sinful practice. But as we do so, we know something that the lost world hasn't realized yet. Look at verse 5. It says, They may malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. 
And then what a sobering reminder in verse 7, that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, let us be self-controlled and let us be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter says in verse 5 that every person who would malign, ridicule, mischaracterize us for, 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 for righteousness sake, for living according to the principles of God's word, for living lives that bring him glory, that every single person that would speak against us one day will give an account to him who is ready to judge both the living and the dead. Every person will stand one day before Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Peter, or The writer of Hebrews is telling us that you and I have one life to live on this earth, and that life is a gift to you from God, and one day you and I will stand before Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, and give an account for our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans chapter 2, verses 5-7 through seven says, To unbelievers, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And he will render to each one according to his works. For those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Each person is going to stand before the Lord and give an account for their life. Even in Revelation chapter 20, the Apostle John, looking up at the great judgment seat of Christ, says this, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. This is exactly what Peter is telling us in verses 5 and 6 and 7, that every person will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So therefore, as followers of Jesus Christ, you and I are to live every day as one who is ready to give an account before the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the idea of future judgment isn't just a Christian concept reserved for those who follow Jesus. The idea of future judgment is a certainty grounded in the authority of the Word of God. It's not just something that we as Christians believe and therefore hope to be true. It is something that is grounded in the living and abiding Word of God that everyone will give an account of their lives before Christ. And if that is true, then you and I need to live our lives in such a way as one who is ready to give an account. Years ago, I read a book by Stephen Covey, a famous leadership author and the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Covey was a Mormon by faith, and so there were many things that I would disagree with Stephen Covey on his personal theology. But one of his seven habits I always found to be spot on, and that was this, that we need to begin with the end in mind. In other words, we need to have a knowledge of what we want the future to look like and then begin to work towards that end in our lives. When it comes to our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to begin with the end in mind. And the end is the day that you and I will stand before the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the righteous one, and the sovereign ruler and righteous judge of the universe. We will stand before him and we will give an account of the life that was given to us and how well we use that life for his glory. 
And so let you and I, each one, stand as one who is ready to give an account, as someone who made good use of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is why Peter says in verse 6, this is why the gospel was preached. This is why the gospel was preached. It was preached in order for people to trust in Christ and to experience life change. Even those who are dead, the dead that he's talking about here are simply those who had received the gospel and had already passed away, those first century Christians who had, who had come to know Jesus Christ and they had died. And he's saying that, that this isn't just the spiritually dead that was preached to, but these are those who, who had trusted in Christ and had died. And even though they had experienced judgment in the flesh for their sins, as all will do, that they also were experiencing life in the Spirit because of their faith in Him. They had heard the gospel and they had believed. And it's a reminder to us that the gospel is preached every day to people who are spiritually dead and apart from Christ. It's preached through the transforming grace that is evident in the lives of Christ followers. This is why Peter is encouraging us to arm ourselves in the battle for our minds, to, to, to live with the end in mind, to resolve that, that the practice of sin that we've engaged in already is sufficient and that we don't need sin anymore, and that we would willingly embrace suffering and persecution if that's what it takes for others to know the glory of Jesus Christ. Finally, I want us to look at verse 7. There's no point here. I just want us to see this. We're going to come back to this verse next week, but I want us to just, just look at the weight of verse 7 for just a second. Verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is near. Peter wrote this verse 2,000 years ago, and people have been saying for 2,000 years, well, Christians have been talking about the end coming, but Peter reminds us that the end of all things is imminent. The return of Christ is imminent. Christ could return at any moment. Therefore, if that's true, then we need to be people who are self-controlled and sober-minded. Peter reminds us that a great day of reckoning is coming. And there is a day coming soon when Jesus Christ, the righteous judge and King of kings, is coming. My question to you is, are you ready for His return? Are you living every day in light of His return? Are you, are you living each day as one who is ready to give an account to Him? Are you longing to see His coming? Or when you think about the return of Christ, does it cause a certain sense of fear and dread and concern in your heart? Can you say if Jesus Christ chose to return today? that you've been a good steward of His grace that was won for you on the cross? Can you say even that you've experienced grace and forgiveness today? If not, we want to give you an opportunity to trust Christ today. We want to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so as we begin to bring this message to a close, I want to ask everybody who's watching online right now just to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to ask you that question again. And that question is, are you living your life today in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ? Have you settled in your heart your relationship with Him? Have you come to the point where you know that you have trusted in Jesus Christ by faith, that you have experienced the grace of God to forgive you of your sins, that you have been changed and made new? Have you, have you come to that point where you've truly received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? If not, we want to invite you to do that today. And you can do that where you are right now. You can do that in your living room. Or you can do that on your back porch. And you can do that by simply submitting your life to Him, by praying a prayer to Him that says, Dear Jesus, I know 
that you are the righteous one, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that you came to die on the cross to secure my salvation. You came to die for my sins, for the things that I have done. And now, Lord Jesus, I say that I trust in you. I trust that your death was sufficient to save me. And I repent of my sins. I repent. I, I understand that I have sinned enough. I turn away from my sin. I place my faith and trust in you. And I want to follow you as Savior and Lord. I surrender my life to you. Maybe you prayed that prayer where you are right now. And if so, we want to know about that. You can let me know that by just sending me an email. My email is matt at centralparkbaptist.org. You can send me an email. Let me know that you prayed that prayer. Maybe you want to send me a text message. I think we're going to put the uh, phone number up on the screen there. You can send me a text message at 256-794-3074. And if you need to talk to somebody more about trusting in Christ as Savior, you can send me a text, you can call me, or you can send me an email. I would love to talk to you further about that. Now I want to say a word of prayer in closing for the church and then give just a couple of instructions before we finish this live stream today. So would you pray together with me as a church, Father? We come to you today and we thank you for uh, this opportunity to once again engage in worship. We thank you for the truth of the song that we sang a few minutes ago that, that the bliss of understanding that our sins not in part but the whole have been nailed to the cross and we can bear them no more, Father, that that truth would resonate within our hearts today. Father, I pray for anybody who is watching today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, God, that maybe you're speaking to them to trust you, or maybe they prayed that prayer just a second ago. Father, I pray you give them the courage to share that with somebody, to, to seek out ways to, to make that real and actual and, and to grow in the Christian life. Father, we thank you that you were able to allow us to join together as brothers and sisters in Christ to look at your word. And I pray, God, that you would help us to begin as followers of Jesus Christ to win the battle for our minds, the battle of our way of thinking. And God, may we be people who would arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus has, that we would embrace eventual suffering for the greater purposes of God, that we would resolve to make a definitive break with the deliberate practice of sin, and that we would live each and every day in light of the eventual return of our Lord and Savior. God, help us to do that as a church. And we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we prepare to close this service, we want to say again, thank you for joining us. Uh, we know that this is going to be kind of our ongoing reality for several weeks now. Uh, and, and so continue to join us at 1030 on Sunday morning. Uh, you, can, uh, you can share this uh, uh, broadcast with those that maybe weren't able to join us by clicking, copying the YouTube link and sending that to them. Uh, we'll be catching back up with you again next week. We'll be sending out emails to our church throughout the week, kind of letting you know about things that are coming up, things that are going on. We'll also be trying to communicate through social media. I'm going to be trying over the course of the next few weeks to do a few more Facebook Live broadcasts whenever I can kind of carve out some time and some intentionality to speak into the lives of our people. So you can join me on my Facebook page. Uh, for those Facebook Live broadcasts and be looking for those in the coming weeks. We'll be still doing our online prayer meeting on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, and so you can join us there as well. Again, thank you again for joining us for this broadcast. We hope that you have a blessed rest of the Lord's Day.